I'm Helen Skelton and this is the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. In this podcast, I'm finding out why energy matters to all of us and what making it clean and green means for our future. In the final episode of this series, I'm going to be asking the questions that are on many people's minds. Can I afford to be greener? What does that mean for my way of life, my town or even my job? There's a risk that if enormous transitions like the shift to renewable energy isn't done with conversation and care, that society can lose out. And if you don't hear everyone's voices, then you risk exacerbating social inequalities or even creating new problems. This is an example of a large organisation, National Grid, doing what it can in the right space, in the right way, to better reflect the people that they serve or the customers that they have. Today, we'll be finding out how people and their quality of life is at the heart of the way clever new tech is being designed and deployed. I want to start this conversation in the United States. Joining me is Fleur Callender, who's responsible for making sure national grid systems are diverse, equal and inclusive for communities. Thanks for your time, Fleur. Hi, thanks for having me. Also joining us is Alice Cross from Sustainability First here in the UK. They've been working with activists, artists, academics, policymakers and communities and utility companies for social and environmental fairness. Hi, great to be here. Let's start with you, Flair. When we're talking about fairness in the energy transition, what does that actually mean? For us, uh, a fair transition means that our communities and our customers and our colleagues are treated fairly in the transition to a greener energy future. It means that National Grid has a vision of ensuring that everyone is treated equitably and no one is left behind. Uh, Everyone needs to benefit. So as we move to a a cleaner and greener energy system, we're making sure that we're doing that responsibly. We're making sure that we are uh, connecting with our communities, our customers and our employees Uh, to ensure that we're working towards a just and fair and equitable transition. So what do people need to do? What behaviours do people need to change to make this transition happen? You know, what's going to be required of people in the coming months and years? First, I'd like to say that we we need to educate ourselves on what the energy transition means and, and what it is. So building awareness is key to energy companies and, and sharing information to our customers is the first step. Connecting with our communities on a grassroots level would allow us to better communicate and share programs with our customers. Now, that being said, you can bring a horse to water, but you can make him drink, right? Uh, So the onus is really on the customer to receive that information and act upon it. So it's accessing those programs that are going to be developed, whether it's around affordability or workforce development. It's, you know, encouraging our customers to take this information and, and really work with it and share it within their communities as well. We also have to look at the opportunity for us to, to work together. The transition, again, it cannot be done in silos. It has to be a, a collective effort. So, you know, it's really coming together to different entities and and being encouraged by that and being just becoming comfortable with conserving energy apply more energy efficiency ways of using energy i would say that um these are are behaviors that our customers would have to adjust to whether that means turning off energy when it's not being used or the use of electric vehicles it's really getting comfortable with conserving energy 
And are you seeing any practical changes, any behavioural changes already? You're seeing an increase in popularity of the, the EV vehicles. Folks are becoming more aware of what climate changes. They want to get more involved. When you look at our younger generation, this is a huge part of their vision board. You know, climate change is very, very important to them. They're becoming more actively involved in making sure that they put steps in place to ensure that they're doing their part in saving the planet. Let me just bring in Alice. Alice, talk to me about how Sustainability First has been working to shape the UK's response to the COP26 conference. Yeah, uh, thanks. So in the run up to COP26, we ran a programme called Together for a Fair Climate Future, which was connecting and engaging people from different backgrounds to discuss how climate change and fairness come together and to discuss what this means for climate action in the UK. So as you mentioned earlier, we heard from activists, artists, uh, community organisers, researchers and many others to develop visions for the future and to share actions for sustainable change. And we think having these conversations is really important for developing our understanding of climate change and fairness and making sure that actions meet people's different priorities and needs. And it was really exciting to bring together uh, so like artists and creative sectors together with energy sectors and policymakers and this led to some really interesting discussions. We asked, how do we ensure a diversity of views shape the UK's response to climate change and building a fairer society? How can we live more sustainably? And how can we link individual actions with wider systems changes needed? And then also, how do we tackle the unequal impacts of climate change? What were the sort of recurring themes that people kept bringing up? What seemed to be on people's minds? Firstly, We heard that climate change does need to be treated as a fairness issue. And that's both when we're thinking about climate mitigation and also adaptation. So that's both reducing emissions and tackling the causes of climate change and also responding to the impacts of climate change. Um, So both these need to be both treated as environmental and social and fairness issues. And we can't look at environmental issues as a standalone issue. They need to be tackled together. So an example is recognising that climate change doesn't impact everybody in the same way. And some countries people and communities are disproportionately impacted. When you're talking about things being unequal, you know, energy prices is a concern on everybody's mind in the UK and presumably in the United States as well, Flo, especially given what's going on globally. You know, we're seeing world leaders having big conversations about how are we going to get our energy going forward in an affordable way? What What is the atmosphere like in the northeast United States where your base flow? Are there those anxieties about energy prices and how people are going to be able to afford to pay their bills? There is a, a natural concern in terms of, of the cost of prices going up, uh, not just for households, but companies as well. And as we're going into this transition, we haven't gotten there yet. So, And, and we know that the transition, there there's a cost implication to that transition and now we you know we're dealing with a situation just before we go through that 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 transition so it's a huge impact on the U.S. side we're looking at prices that just you know surged and you know as a as a consumer myself you know this impacts my budget my personal budget it impacts you know the way companies work even before we had to deal with what is happening in Ukraine and the potential knock-on effects of energy prices, the transition has always kind of been identified as being an expensive period because new technology is expensive. It takes time to move people over, doesn't it? Do you think that by 2050, 
you know, if we reach the goals for net zero carbon emissions, will people on lower incomes be in the same position as everybody else or will people on lower incomes lose out? Great question. We're building on a strategy that would incorporate uh, affordability as a focus area for us. We understand that, yes, there is going to be a cost implication with the transition. And we also understand we have to do this in a collective manner, right? And that includes working collectively with other utility companies, but also with our customers. And really going back to that whole point of understanding where those vulnerabilities are. And yes, it falls in line with with the cost of the transition and developing programs that would assist our, our customers to to get access, whether it's funds or or, or support systems that would allow them to to transition smoothly. And presumably there's an opportunity to be creative with technology. I'm thinking about the example of electric cars, which seems to be the one people fall back on. Yes, if we all drove electric cars, it would be better for the planet, but people can't afford an electric car. Yet in the United States, you are thinking creatively about electric vehicles. Yeah, and and for National Grid, clean transportation is a huge part of our, our vision. So by 2013, clean electricity will be the fuel that most people use to move around, right? So National Grid is facilitating an equitable access to clean transportation choices by building a reliable network. It would impact our, our communities as well, and it will empower the EV market that is vital to eliminating automobile emissions. Have you got any other examples of how this is already happening successfully in the US? We're seeing that um, New York's um, Port Authority, they have been implementing some projects around electrifying their bus transportation. And we're seeing that the, the effectiveness of that, it's just as efficient, but it's also lining up to net zero goals. So with us incorporating that into our operations as well, the trucks that we use to go to customer sites, those things are going to be converted to electric vehicles. So we expect that there's going to be not only a, a quick turnaround in terms of the emissions that we're reducing, but it also be a more effective way of using transportation. When we're talking about a transition to clean and green energy, there's obviously a big infrastructure change and there's going to have to be a lot of investment and, and, you know, new plants and pipes and all the rest of it. How is that going to impact people's lives and landscapes and their immediate communities? Well, one of the things that when we're looking to transition, yes, there is an impact that's going to be on our infrastructure. What we plan to do is really work with our communities, not being seen as as an adversary, but being seen as an advocate in in, in this space. So um, whether it is laying down of new pipes, you know, that's something that's done in consolation with our communities and ensuring that we're staying within the guidelines of our regulators as well. Alice, is that something that you would echo in terms of what you've heard people say, are people concerned about the landscapes in which they live and how this transition might affect them? 
Yeah, I think people, we heard that people really want to be engaged and involved in the decisions that affect them and that affect their future. They want to be able to share their needs and priorities and kind of their vision for um, what a transition might look like. And so for decision makers like policymakers or businesses, this means kind of engaging communities in developing those plans and in shaping agendas. And kind of one of the ways that we saw that this was really kind of exciting through the programme was people using art or using storytelling and other kind of creative approaches to share their priorities to innovate um, and to imagine you know alternative futures and imagine what the transition might look like we heard from someone called Rachel Edwards who belongs to a group of housing association tenants in South Wales and they're really interested in climate change and they want to make a difference but Rachel was saying that in order to do that they need help from their landlords to support retrofitting and improve energy efficiency of their housing and Rachel was stressing that these solutions need to be affordable for all But they also want to see communities at the heart of that change with everyone involved in making choices um, that make a difference for them. Alice, you've mentioned some artwork there. How would our listeners get to see that? All the artworks and the stories that were shortlisted for the Art and Writing Prize are available on the Sustainability First website. So I'd really encourage um, everyone to go, go to the website and have a look at some of these amazing um, pieces of work that, that, that are really kind of tackling this issue of um, climate change and fairness. Who was part of this project? Who put forward contributions, Alice? We had contributions from artists, students, people working in the sector, people who came across the project or people who have experiences of, for example, flooding themselves. And there was a huge range of entries and stories that we heard. Um, We had a really moving piece uh, from somebody who shared their experiences of flooding over multiple years in their hometown. So, yeah, lots of different groups of people from all over the UK who were engaging with the, the prizes. Alice, with the projects that you've been working on in mind, how important is it to recognise what's going on but look to the future as well? Yeah, I think that's something that really came out through the project, that having these positive visions for the future is really important for people to feel that they have kind of a future to work towards. But also it's keeping in mind that climate change is happening today and it is impacting people's lives, livelihoods, whether that be through flooding or sea level rise today. So it's understanding that urgency um, whilst having those visions for the future that are more positive and are more hopeful. Is that something you would echo, Fleur? Because presumably you're speaking to communities a lot. And yes, you you know, with your utility company hat on, you've got a job to do. But do you feel people are coming with you? There's a will. Yeah, I I think people are excited because we're engaging even more with our communities. And this is an effort that we're not doing just single-handedly, but we're doing it hand-in-hand with our communities and our customers. They feel a sense of inclusion. One of the potential benefits is the opportunity to create green jobs. The UK aims to create 2 million green jobs by 2030. Are you expecting an increase in the number of green jobs in America? Yeah, so as we look at the transition, there is an opportunity for new innovative roles. What we have been doing is building our strategy around workforce development in areas that may not have been looked on in the past. There is an opportunity for green jobs to be created, but what about people who might need to retrain? Because, you know, the harsh reality is there are some industries that are going to be phased out. Will those people be left behind? The plan is we really focus on no one being left behind, right? So there, there's going to be opportunities for folks to learn in new spaces. There's a, a solar access initiative where we're looking more towards solar energy. 
clean transport initiative where we're looking to engage more with suppliers who provide that type of resources and also our energy efficiency programs, you know. You've you've touched on a few projects there that are all underway. Alice, can you just give us a little sense of, is there an energy from people to get to net zero? There is definitely an energy and we saw this through an art and writing prize that we held. We received hundreds of really exciting, innovative entries across uh, short stories, poetry, ceramics, paintings, all kind of thinking about what a fair climate future might mean for them or for their communities or for society more widely. And we were really inspired by some of the different actions and different ideas and different methods that people were putting forward. How can we bring these kind of ideas from these creative approaches into the ways that we're thinking about um, the transition more broadly. So that was something that we really felt the energy from that and, and, and want to kind of take that forward. Fleur, this is undoubtedly an exciting field to work in, but it's not without its challenges. From a personal point of view, what motivates you to work in this sector? Well, I would say um, my, my personal connection really is just seeing myself and my family as customers of the company that I work with. There's a passion in in me for community activism. And when I envision myself, again, I see myself as a customer. And in in doing that, I also envision how other customers might feel. Uh, So it's really looking at, 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 at families, the impact that our industry has in their day-to-day life and understanding the impact that it has on, on my family and trying to do what is right because I know that what I'm doing is something that's, that's impactful to, to my community and my family. And Alice, the same question to you. Um, I think hearing so many different people's experiences and stories over the course of this programme, but also more widely, um, because the impacts of climate change are happening today and really understanding that those um, impacts are having consequences for people's lives today and hearing their visions for the future. I think that's really motivating because um, we need to tackle the unequal impacts of climate change and we need to kind of build this more sustainable and fairer future so that everybody can benefit from the transition. Thank you both for your time. Some inspiring projects underway there. It's fascinating to hear how they're making the energy transition fairer for people already. We've talked about what fairness means for everyday people at home in terms of their bills, their health and their lifestyles. Now let's talk a little bit more about what it means to design a fair system. Local authorities have a huge responsibility on their shoulders here in the UK. Alongside making our communities great places to live and work, They've been given the job of cleaning up pollution and tackling traffic problems in towns and cities. That means working with local citizens to make big changes. Let's hear an example. So I'm Douglas Johnson. I'm a Green Party councillor in Sheffield for City Ward, which covers the city centre. And I'm also the executive member on Sheffield City Council for Climate Change, Environment and Transport. Today I'm standing in the Castlegate, Greater Green area, as it's now known. It's now a destination itself. Where I'm standing used to be a dual carriageway full of trucks and buses and vans and cars. And today it's a peaceful, tranquil, calm, quiet and clean planted area with wide paving, wide cycle routes going through it and no motor vehicles. Instead, it's got benches. 
and instead it's got um, a lot of planting with biodiversity um, with bug hotels to attract a decent amount of pollinators in the area and also signage to explain what's going on it's about engaging the public who want to come and spend time here you can see that the birds are in the trees here that are being planted but of course it's also a very convenient place to get through if you're on foot or if you're cycling or on a scooter or in a wheelchair or using a with a pram it gets you off the roads and of course another benefit is this is actually a flood defense so under the ground here there are built-in sustainable urban drainage features and this is all to slow the flow of water at times of heavy rainfall that goes into the river swells the, the flow of water and uh, takes it up through and downstream to Rotherham and Doncaster so it's about protecting Sheffield but also protecting the towns downstream if you're here now, you wouldn't really imagine what it was like when it was just chocker full of vehicles, you know, belching out dirty fumes at the back of the market here. It's complete transformation. And when you reflect on that transformation, you think, actually, this is the way that cities can go. Cities used to be cramped and dirty. And like many other cities around the world, they're showing the way forward that cities can be really worthwhile places to live in. They can be places where we actually reflect on the quality of life and where we enjoy them. So people sometimes ask, what made the council do this? This is a big project. It's been an expensive project, but it's certainly a worthwhile project. What kicked it off? With the closure of this market here and with the building of the, the other element of the inner ring road in Sheffield, the question arises about what to do with the redundant carriageway. And this is a real opportunity to experiment, to go out on a limb, but to make a decision about a transformative effect to combine flood defences with um, biodiversity, planting and amenity. But also actually make it much easier to travel through on foot and on bike. It isn't the sort of place that was pleasant to walk. It isn't the sort of place that used to be safe to cycle on, but it is now. It's being able to get from one side of the city centre to the other. And that's a really critical thing for building up the cycling infrastructure that we have here. So it's one form of transport to another, and that is the ideal modal shift. And of course, that's really fundamental to tackling climate change. We in the cities need to find ways of using motor vehicles less because they cause pollution and there isn't room for them. So the quietness and the things like the bug hotels mean that there's an increase in biodiversity. There's just a lot more things like bees coming about, which people enjoy seeing themselves. There's also a lot of birds scuttling about in the carefully selected planting here. You go along by the river and you see kingfishers and herons. We know that there's been interest from town planners, and urban designers and highway engineers from around the country and around the world, from other countries too. In Sheffield, the idea is to extend this as far as possible. There's a further phase of greater green planting under construction as we speak. But as well as this, we've also been able to persuade private developers that this is the sort of thing to aspire to. Good quality walking and cycling routes, good quality planting and drainage but also improving the amenity in the city centre there. Really interesting stuff there. We talk a lot in this podcast series about big national and international goals for business, industry and environment. However, those authorities, organisations and bodies that consult and innovate with citizens are a vital conduit between us and the bigwigs in Westminster. Without that kind of representation it wouldn't be possible to make our services green, accessible and affordable for all. Back to ground level now, Fleur, Alice and I discussed green jobs earlier in this episode. 
That's why I want to find out more about what it's like to start a career in this sector and what kind of opportunities exist for everyone to play their part in the clean energy transition. Fergus Hind works at National Grid to help underserved communities reach skills, training and job opportunities. I'm in charge of implementing the Grid for Good programme in the US and the UK. Grid for Good started out as a programme focusing on 16 to 25 year olds from underserved or socioeconomically challenging backgrounds to give them skills, upskilling and training and employability opportunities using the power of volunteers from the national grid workforce. And so the programmes focus down on getting young these young people ready for roles in the green jobs economy, in the drive towards net zero. Social mobility is fundamental for a more equitable and fairer society. And the fact is large organisations, if they've got the right governance in place and if they've got the right soul, will want to do something about that within their purview and their power. And so this is an example of a large organisation, National Grid, doing what it can in the right space, in the right way, for an outcome that benefits all, that benefits the people in our communities, that benefits the outlook and and knowledge base of the organisation to better reflect the people that they serve or the customers that they have. The thing about green jobs and the opportunities that are going to exist for these next younger generations is the fact that I think a lot of the roles are yet to be defined because the actual things that we need to do haven't been fully sussed out yet. There isn't a full consensus of how we actually get all the way to net zero because it's a live working brief. Obviously, the programme is always going to need to adapt and evolve to the needs of young people, the opportunities we have as an organisation and uh, new areas where we'll be starting new partnerships and new projects and, and, and building new infrastructure. What I would say if anyone is either interested in being a participant, being one of our students or charities that want to see if they could be involved, to so go to gridforgood.com and get in touch with us via the links on that page. For young people, the way through into the programme is via our charity partners on the ground in the communities itself. My name's Tanya Bukhari and I am an engineering assistant at National Grid. I'm actually a student on placement year and I study software engineering at Westminster University. I got this email from my university. It was Grid for Good partnering with their charity partner, Generating Genius. So it said in the email, do you study a STEM degree? And I was like, yeah, I do. Okay, that's fine. And are you from an ethnic background? And are you from a disadvantaged background? And those three things applied to me in that sense. And I saw National Grid's name. I'm like, okay, yeah, National Grid, experts, makes electricity. That's all I know. But okay, engineering, STEM degree stuff yeah, I'm going to apply for this. I'm actually working with quite a lot of their contractors where they're doing the 3D modelling design. So the infrastructure project is actually really about bringing in the offshore wind of 40 gigawatts onshore in the East Coast to meet the demand and supply that, of course, is going to grow in the next few years. It's actually a need. So it made me understand how important these projects are. So I think it was the second day of my two-week placement. I didn't know what I was properly walking into. I didn't know what a substation was. I had no clue. Like, I I didn't know. But 
even when I was younger, I used to like at home, I would always assemble things. And when I went there and saw the substation and the equipment, I was like, I want to learn what that does in my brain, what that transformer is, what the colors are, what does this mean? Like, I want to know these things. They told me this is the GIS station, the biggest one in Europe. And I'm like, whoa, there's some stuff going on in the East Coast. And I was really into science when I was in GCSEs as well. I think that was my favorite subject. I wanted to be an environmental engineer then, but um, I wanted to do chemistry and physics and maybe even further maths. But my maths isn't my strong point. And it was difficult because throughout, I think, around GCSE time, that's when my mum's health started deteriorating. As a kid, we did live on benefits and it it wasn't the best because school lunches and things like this, they only go so far. So it was always like, okay, I need a job. I need to get us out of this. Whilst I was working so much, by the end of my last year, I was working three jobs. And at the same time, my mom was diagnosed with epilepsy and it's happening during exams and things like this. And it's just like, it gets a lot for you in that mindset. You can't focus, but I will try hard. And I know what it is to work hard as well. So I try to aim higher This whole placement is just for me to go and explore as much of National Grid as I can. And I'm so blessed to have that. And I'm so thankful because they're like, here's the resources. Go on, go see what you like. So you get exposed to such like different areas in a project team. It just makes me realize, okay, if I can use my skills from then, I can put it into these things. And it's just amazing. I feel very nervous sometimes. But I thought, okay, I was thinking, how am I going to pray? Like, where am I going to pray? Are people going to judge me? Things like this. What if I say something stupid? Or, you know, these thoughts come through your mind. And um, my mentor, Bob Jones, on the placement, he he was like, does she need anything extra? They were so accommodating. I was like, wow. Like, this was the very first time I was experiencing that. And that was just even before I actually met them. Me and Bob have like great chats anyways. Like we talk about so many things, especially if we're on a route drive or he's dropping me off to another station, a substation or something. It's that sort of environment. I've spoken to quite a few people on the project and they, they also have like elderly relatives that are unwell and they have to look after them and they can take time out to go and look after them. Or if there's an emergency, you can go. And that was the work culture that I really liked. Thank you for listening to this series of the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. We're taking a break for now, but we'll be back soon to dive into more amazing technology, hear brilliant ideas and meet more inspiring people who are working to make our energy future clean, safe, affordable and fair for everyone. Across this series, it's been amazing to hear about the huge impact science, engineering and technology can have on helping us fight climate change. We've poked about in boilers, talked climate change at COP, heard about the future of flying and gone deep under the sea to uncover mysteries that could solve our planet's problems. In times of uncertainty, it's so important to share ideas and real-life success stories. Meeting everyone who's taken part in this series has inspired me and given me hope, and I hope it's done the same for you. Every day is bringing our planet, environments and societies new challenges, and as we've heard, 
There's so much technology still in development to help change our world for the better, but there's still lots of work to do. This revolution really is happening at an incredible pace. If you'd like to keep track of it all, you can visit nationalgrid.com to follow our world's clean energy story as it happens. You can start your own conversation by sharing this podcast on social media or with a friend. I'm Helen Skelton, and thanks for listening to The Clean Energy Revolution.